something the podcast where I research whatever I want in the hope I'll learn something new and then I can pass on all the coolest bits to you. Um, I'm Melissa and I'm Everett. All right so this is well finally another episode of the podcast and I'm very excited about that. Glorious return. It is uh, another installment of the comparative mythology series where as promised a very long time ago I'm going to tell you about dragons. Um, yeah, that's, that's it. I'm excited. Dragons are cool. Well, let's get right into it. Teach me something. Awesome. So just, you know, a little general background, um, you know, in, in traditional people, dragons usually had a deep meaning, you know, primal forces, creation, destruction, death, that kind of thing. Um, like everything else in history, it's not exactly clear when or where dragons first emerge, but it seems like it's been part of human folklore and mythology since its earliest days. Okay. Um, and so the word dragon uh, came into the English language in the early 13th century from the old French dragon, which in turn comes from Latin, shockingly. Draconum, which means a huge serpent or dragon. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> this is all very, you know... Circular. Yes. From the ancient Greece, dracon... Which means dragon. Which means serpent. Or sea serpent. <laughs> okay. Um, basically, the Greek and Latin term is about really big serpents. Uh, so what you're going to learn is that dragon kind of just means serpent. It doesn't necessarily mean the thing we think of with big wings and stuff. That's a certain type of dragon. Sure. Um, but... So that's kind of why, if you may remember back to our Pliny the Elder episode, he talks about cures derived from dragons. Right. He was just talking about big snakes. Oh. So it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be mythological. I'm going to believe he's talking about... You you believe Pliny thought dragons were real? Yeah. Yeah, well... Large flying ones. Other Greeks certainly did. Exactly. So we will talk about that. Um, The Greek word probably comes from an Indo-European or Sanskrit root, which means to see. And that to see, to snakes. see. Mm, close. So it's thought to have referred to something with a deadly glance, something with unusually bright or sharp eyes, because a snake's eyes always appear to be open. Okay. And just because I can never resist throwing some biology into an episode, I thought I'd explain that. Excellent. Um, snakes don't have eyelids. Correct. Oh, you already know? Do you want to explain it? No, I don't know. I, that's about all I know. It's a membrane of some sort, but I don't know how it works. Yeah, so they don't, like, blink or anything, whatever. Their eyes always do look open. So they have something called a brill attached to each eye, and it's like a transparent disc-shaped scale. Um, so, yeah, basically, they don't open and shut their eyes. They always have their eyes open. Mm-hmm. So dragons, mythologically speaking, are serpents or snakes that have kind of extra powers, And then as the dragon mythos kind of developed, the physical shapes evolved. Some types of dragons kind of co-opted this hodgepodge of other animal characteristics. You know, the head of an elephant in India or Hmm. lions or birds of prey in the Middle East or numerous heads of reptiles. You know, that kind of thing. Chimeric in nature. They could pretty much be anything um, based on that culture's 
other goings on, really. Okay. Um, you know, some have wings, some don't. Some can breathe fire, some can speak. Some are gods. Mm-hmm. Some are huge. Some are teeny. You know. Um, why did everyone create dragon myths? I mean, obviously no one knows. Because they're cool. Uh, like, that's yeah. It. So, some theories are that, you know, for millennia, there is these giant bones people found in the ground, and they're like, what the heck? So maybe okay. it should be this crazy dragon creature because they look real big and and cool, and we don't know what that could be. You know, fossils were really a, As in, a yeah, mystery. Dinosaur fossils are akin to. Right, or just like extinct megafauna, like the giant giraffe or sure. that kind of thing. You know, back in the day, there was more living megafauna before we killed it all, or Ice Ages killed it all and stuff. So that mm-hmm. probably played a role. Um, giant crocodiles and whales and poisonous goanna lizards in Australia might have blended in there. Um, And then there was this thing that people were just innately scared of snakes. Back to our primate ancestors. It was a characteristic that kept us alive. And so we wrote stories about things that really scared us. That was a human trait. Is a human trait. Yeah, ghost stories and horror movies and, you know, the such. Right. So my intention here is going to be to explain dragons in as many different cultures as I have time for. And it's going to be a long one, you know, okay. as you can see from your timestamp currently. Um, so buckle in and just get ready for me to mispronounce literally everything because I was not about to try to figure out how to pronounce everything in every single culture ever. Oh. It's not going to okay. happen. Strange. It's not going to happen. I got a few. That's it. So I want to start in Africa. Good. Um, lots of stuff starts in Africa, so we That's are right. also going to start in Africa. So, Egypt first. Logical place in Africa, sure. They have a lot of cool myths, so we're starting in Egypt. Um, Apophis. Apep is another name for him. Apophis might be someone you've heard of. Certainly a character in some video games. <laughs> True. Um, he was one of the earliest incarnations of a dragon image. Um, often depicted as a coiled snake, and he lived in the Duat, which is the Egyptian underworld. Okay. In some accounts, he's as long as the height of eight men, and his head was made of flint. Uh, Thunderstorms and earthquakes were thought to be caused by his roar, and solar eclipses were the result of Apophis attacking Ra during the daytime. Sure. So, interestingly, we're going to see this link between dragons and eclipses come up again and again. Um, Ra often dismembers this demon into 12 pieces, which allows life to then continue. Other tales, um, have him being destroyed by spells from other creatures or the god Set destroys him. Um, but every telling includes Apophis being reborn to then just try to destroy the world again in an endless cycle. So cyclic in nature. It is, yes. Um, Denwen is a giant serpent mentioned in the pyramid text whose body was made of fire and who nearly destroyed all the gods of the Egyptian pantheon with his flames. All of them. He was ultimately defeated by the pharaoh, and this is the victory that gave the pharaoh his divine right to rule. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Denwin the dragon. Um, the Ouroboros. Yes. Is a well-known Egyptian symbol of a serpent. And as we know, serpent and dragon are the same thing. Right. So... He is included. It's a serpent that's swallowed in its own tail. You know the one I am talking about. I sure do. Infinity and all of that. Um, well, you know, not the mathematical concept, but the <laughs> human it makes concept. Of, yeah. yes. So the precursor to the Ouroboros was the many-faced, a serpent with five heads, who was said to coil around the corpse of the sun god Ra protectively. 
Um, in medieval alchemy, the Ouroboros kind of became a typical Western dragon with wings and legs and a tail and all that. And that image is found in tons of alchemical texts from, again, the medieval period. Okay. Yes, they kind of morphed him into more dragon-like. Um, but there are other African cultures that have dragon symbols, and they are more the mm, the tribal cultures. Um, that share their kind of types of stories with, like, what we think of as our indigenous people. You know, very pagan. Okay. Every animal kind of has its own little deity represented, whatever. So, those types of dragons are serpentine with two or four legs. Uh, often the four-legged dragons can fly without wings, but the two-legged dragons can only fly if they have wings. Uh, they okay. like, they love to eat elephants. And well, I mean, most people do. <laughs> These aren't people. They live peacefully with the humans. They all have a stone in their brain called Dracontius that gives them magical powers. So all the powers, you know, flying, healing. They could heal with this. Um, people gave them gifts in exchange for healing sick and injured people. Okay, sure. Um, so two examples of African dragons are the partners of Vida and Dambala. So Avita is the rainbow goddess, and Dambala is the cosmic rainbow serpent. Rainbows are also going to come up again and again in reference to dragons, which I find interesting. Yeah. So Dambala was the serpent of the earth. Avita was the snake of the sky that brought rain and made rainbows. So in art, they're shown as intertwined serpents. Cool. All right. On to Asia. As you know, Ooh. we must we must go. Yeah, definitely. Um, the bulk of the bulk of this will probably be Asia. So China. Mm-hmm. Um, and and again, let's just make it clear that I didn't want this to be two hours long. So I can't tell a bunch of oh, so cool. There's so many cool stories, and I can't tell most of them. Fair enough. Okay, so in Eastern Asia, specifically China, dragons were called this general name, long, and I'm saying that wrong. I know, but. Um, that's how we would say it. And so if you know someone with the last name Long, their name means dragon. Cool. If you didn't know. Archaeologist, or there's an archaeologist named uh, Zhao Chongfa who believes that the Chinese word for dragon is actually just an onomatopoeia of the sound of thunder in Cantonese. Linking them to rain and thunder, thunder. and lightning yeah. and stuff. Okay, Exactly, cool. yeah. And therefore maybe even rainbows. Well... They don't specifically mention rainbows. That comes up mostly in the South American and Australian, like the more kind of, again, pagan, animal, nature-based dragons. But yes, rain, just storms, rain, that kind of thing for sure. Thunder. Okay. Um, So the dragon's the highest ranking creature in the Chinese animal hierarchy. Um, Dragon symbolism can be found as far back as like the Neolithic pottery and Bronze Age ritual vessels they found from China. Um, so they're, you know, symbols of power and royalty, and they would often incorporate parts of other animals. A typical description of the Chinese dragon included deer antlers, demon eyes, carp scales, eagle claws, and a snake neck. Okay. Yeah, I can see Um, other descriptions of the Chinese dragon claim that it could change its appearance at will. Some Chinese dragons had wings, but most didn't, though they could usually still fly. They didn't need wings to fly. Sure. Um, in China, dragons were red, black, yellow, or white, generally, those colors. Red, black, yellow, or white. Yes, and those colors are symbolic. So, each color would indicate a cardinal direction and an omen. So, I I don't, you know, one is of the north, one is of the west, east, yes. And the omen would be things like the coming of spring or an impending famine. 
Okay. The image of the Chinese dragon was kind of roughly uh, set, established during the Shang dynasty, which started in 1600 BC. And then there weren't changes for a really long time. So by the way, the Shang dynasty is the earliest ruling dynasty of China in recorded history, though we know that there were other unrecorded okay. dynasties before that, but, you know, written record. That makes sense. Like they, they're the, the ones one. who adopted it. Yeah, well, kind of like it was a thing before then, but it looked however, whatever. And then it was like, okay, this is what we think dragons are going to be like for my dynasty. And then it, you know, kept going like that. Um, so this image was that of the winged rain, rain dragon, Yinglong. And that became kind of the symbol of feudal imperial power, but it wasn't necessarily closely tied to the emperors yet. It was just China's power. Okay. So it wasn't until roughly the Han Dynasty, which started in, it's a little, you know, disputed, but 206 BC. Okay. It wasn't until then that, that dragons were like the emperor's thing. Um, and then that kind of continued all the way until the final Chinese dynasty, the Qing dynasty, which ruled from 1644 to 1911 CE. Yeah. Um, so Chinese emperors kind of gradually became more closely tied with the dragons and identified with the dragons until the emperors started claiming to be actual incarnations or descendants of a divine dragon. Um, so eventually dragons were like only allowed to appear on it. The emperor's things, if a commoner possessed everyday items with the image of a dragon, then they were executed. <laughs> like it was not like, just compensated. This is like or, uh, confiscated. <laughs> Definitely not compensated. Well, I, I guess the opposite yeah. of that. Right. Yeah. Decompensated. <laughs> exactly. So after the last Chinese emperor was overthrown in 1911, uh, that's when many ordinary Chinese people began to identify themselves as descendants of dragons and you okay. take the symbol for themselves. Um, so since the Tang and Song dynasties, so we're talking between 618 and 1279 CE, we've, okay. got, a, we've got a different representation of a dragon. Okay. Um, so it was no longer the Yinglong with the wings, but... Now it was the common wingless kind of snake-shaped yellow dragon, which is called Huanglong. So there was like an evolution period where the images of Huanglong was used kind of together with the Yinglong. And then you see this yellow dragon completely replace Yinglong becomes the dragon symbolizing China's power and the emperors and all of that. Okay. Um, so, but different dynasties would adopt different colored dragons as their mascot. Um, so, so the yellow dragon doesn't necessarily mean he has to be yellow is what I'm saying. Like, that's just like his name. And, oh, yeah, it's not necessarily his color. Huang Long is the dragon and he's the yellow. It's like there was the yellow emperor, the yellow dragon. That's just like, okay. that's just a name. Um, so yeah, the, the Qin dynasty's imperial color was yellow. So yeah, it adopted yellow dragons as, as its official dragon. The Ming dynasty, red dragons. Okay. Um, Chinese dragons could have three, four, or five claws. Four was the most common version, um, but five clawed dragons were associated with the imperial family. Mythologically speaking, yeah. Yinglong helped the Yellow Emperor defeat the tyrant Qi Yu. So the dragon Zhu Long, which is called the Torch Dragon, is a god who composed the universe with his body. Um, there's many mythic heroes that have been conceived after their mothers copulated with divine dragons. <laughs> There's makes sense in terms Huang, of having... Huang Di, Shenong, Emperor Yao, and Emperor Shun all have this kind of backstory in mythology. Right. Um, again, the Yellow Emperor, 
was said to have been immortalized into a dragon and ascended to heaven. Um, the other legendary ruler in Chinese mythology, the Yan Emperor, was born with, well, by his mother's telepathy with a mythical dragon. Whatever that necessarily means. She was pregnant by telepathy? Sure. Through the dragon. I mean, it's no crazier than any other myth, is it? Yeah. Um, so since the Chinese consider the Yellow Emperor and the Yan Emperor as their ancestors, then that kind of is why they refer to themselves as the descendants of the dragon. Understood. Yes. So in Chinese lore in general, the dragon is thought to have power over rain. Um, drought was thought to be caused by a dragon's laziness. Not like anger or, uh, I mean, being upset. Maybe, but because he was upset, then he was lazy and he wouldn't make rain. Okay. It was, it was just thought to be laziness, yes. So the association with rain is actually the source of the Chinese customs of dragon dancing and dragon boat racing. Um, and like I said, there's just too many myths to, to cover a fraction of them, but I picked a few. So I know I'm probably not saying this right, but it sounds, it's, it seems like I should be saying the Miao people. Okay. M-I-A-O. Um, of Southwest China have a story that a, d- a divine dragon creates the first humans by Breathing on monkeys that came to play in his cave. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, the Han people have lots of stories about short-tailed old Li, who is a black dragon who was born to a poor family in Shandong. And when his mother saw him for the first time, she fainted. Uh, his father comes home from the field and sees him and, and hit him with a spade and cut off part of his tail. So that's why he's short-tailed. Uh, then Li bursts through the ceiling, flies away to the Black Dragon River in northeast China, and he became the god of that river. And the anniversary of his mother's death on the Chinese lunar calendar, okay. um, old Li returns home, causing it to rain. And he's still worshipped in this village, in this area, as a rain god. Right. Like, they keep on looking for his return every year. Yes. He brings the rain. Yes. So prayers invoking dragons to bring rain are, are common in old Chinese texts. Um, there's instructions on how to bring rain by making clay figurines of dragons during droughts and then having like young men and boys dance among the figurines mm-hmm. to you know encourage the dragons to give them some rain. Um, there's been texts found from the Qing dynasty that advises hurling the bone of a tiger or dirty objects into the pool where the dragon lives. Since dragons cannot stand tigers nor dirt. Hate, okay. I hate those things. So then the dragon of the pool is going to cause heavy rain to drive the objects out. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Again, makes There's some logic there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Rainmaking rituals um, invoking dragons are still common in, in villages in China to this day. It's not like a big city thing. This is a, a rural type thing. But okay. um, in another Chinese legend, the cultural hero... Fu Si is said to have been crossing the Low River when he saw the Long Ma, which is a Chinese horse dragon with seven dots on its face, six dots on its back, eight dots on its left flank, and nine dots on its right flank. He was so moved by seeing this that when he got home, he drew a picture of it, including all the dots, and then he used these dots as letters and invented Chinese writing, which he used to write his book, The I Ching, which you may have heard of. Yeah. There you go. That's it. Chinese language was invented because of the uh, horse dragon with dots on it. And, okay. Like, in connecting all the dots in different ways, he made different... I don't know. Icono- like, icono- iconography? Is that the right I, word? I, I, I really okay. don't know how he got from dots to Chinese writing. 
But that's the story of how he did it. Cool. Um, so the Chinese dragon kings are kind of thought of as the inspiration for the Hindu myth of the Naga, which we are going to talk about when we get to India. Perfect. Um, and Chinese dragons obviously influence the dragon myths in most other Asian countries. Yeah. Um, for example, Japan. So Japanese dragon myths kind of amalgamate the native legends with the imported stories from China. So they did have some stories before, and then the Chinese influence came over and things kind of blended together. Um, like other Asian dragons, most Japanese ones are water deities associated with rainfall and bodies of water. Um, they're large, usually wingless, serpentine creatures with clawed feet. Uh, Japanese dragons are called Ryu. Uh, they usually have antlers, and usually they have three claws, but they can have more. Um, and the Japanese dragons are usually more slender than the Chinese dragon. Okay. So as I mentioned, Japanese dragons were associated with rain, and they prayed to the deities in times of drought. Um, in the Japanese village of Okamura near Edo, where Edo was, the villagers would make a dragon effigy out of straw and magnolia leaves and bamboo, and then they prayed it through the village to ask for rain. Um, imperial traditions in Japan, like other Asian royal traditions, um, definitely tie dragons to the royal lineage. Right. They, they do kind of depart from typical Asian dragons, though, in that some are evil. So one thing is okay. that, yeah, most in, most Asian, well, if you notice in the Chinese stories, dragons are mostly benevolent and helpful and, you know, that kind of thing. And, and you probably know that in other cultures, that's not always the case. No, definitely not. <laughs> so, um, Here's, okay, an example. We have Yamato no Orochi. He had eight heads, eight tails, and eight claws per foot. He devoured seven sisters, but before he could eat the eighth sister, he was killed by the storm god Susanu, who had been expelled from heaven for tricking his sister Amaterasu, the sun goddess. So Susanu won the fight by getting Orochi drunk and chopping off each head as it dunked it into the barrel of sake. Okay. Yeah. So in... In Orochi's tale, Susanoo discovered the legendary sword Kusanagi no Tsurugi, which... Okay, I'm going to say these things right. Hold on. Along with the Yata no Kagami mirror and the Yasakani no Magatama jewel became the three sacred imperial regalia of Japan. Okay. Cool origin story for those. There you go. So Japanese legends say dragons can be appeased or exercised, you know. Um, with metal. Okay. I mean, why not? Famously, Nita Yoshisada hurled a sword into the sea at Sagami to appease the dragon god of the sea. And we have Ki no Suryuki throwing a metal mirror into the sea at Sumiyoshi for the same reason. They just throw metal things into the sea. Done. Easy. Um, Japanese Buddhism also incorporated dragons. So the Japanese Buddhist deities Benton and Kwanon are often shown sitting or standing on the back of dragons. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, several Japanese immortals called Senin use dragons as their mounts. Um, one example is someone named Bomo, who is said to have hurled his staff into a puddle of water, causing a dragon to come forth and let him ride it to heaven. Yeah. So Japanese myths also have lots of stories about dragon-like creatures kind of combined with other local wildlife. So the 
Shachi Hoko is a creature with the head of a dragon, a bushy tail, fish-like scales, and fire emerging from its armpits. Uh, we have another creature called the Shifun, who has the head of a dragon, feathered wings, and the tail and claws of a bird. Um, a white dragon that lives in a pool in Yamashiro province emerges every 50 years and turns into a bird called the Ogoncho, which has a call like the howling of a wild dog, and it was believed that that call was a sign of a terrible famine coming. Okay. Which is probably related to drought again. If there's a drought, then you're going to have a yeah. famine and... Yeah, and, you, you know, know, every 50-year kind of cycle thing again. and Yeah. Makes like, sense. Like these things, you know, they, they wanted to explain them, right? So, um, all right, let's move on to Korea. So the Korean dragon is similar in appearance to other East Asian dragons. It typically, though, has a much longer beard than Chinese dragons. Very long beards. So um, very occasionally, this is interesting, a dragon may be depicted as carrying an orb known as the... Yoiju, which is the Korean name for the mythical Sintamani stone. Um, that's a wish-fulfilling jewel found in Hindu and Buddhist mythology. So it's kind of crosses a lot of cultures there. But right. um, whoever could wield the Yoiju was blessed with the abilities of omnipotence and creation at will. Only four-toed dragons were both wise and powerful enough to wield these orbs, as opposed to the lesser three-toed dragons. And for the simple enough reason that four toes means you could hold on to things. You had like a thumb, uh, yeah, basically. Okay. Sure. <laughs> yep. Um, the number nine is important in Korea. I mean, same with China, but specifically dragons in Korea were said to have 81 scales on their back. Nine times, times nine. nine. Yeah. Um, representing yang essence. So that's that masculine force in, in nature. Um, like Chinese myths, dragons in Korea are mostly benevolent beings. You know, they're related to water, agriculture. They bring rains and clouds and all that. Um, so, you know, they live in rivers, lakes, oceans, deep mountain ponds. Uh, humans journey to undersea realms to visit dragons. Uh, the undersea palace of the dragon king. That's all common in Korean folklore. Um, Korean mythology states that most dragons were originally emugis. Or emojis. Hmm. I guess they emoji. Okay. Emojis. Or lesser dragons. So they're described as large, benevolent, python-like creatures that live in water or caves, and it's lucky to see them. Some myths say that a emoji could become a true dragon, which they called a yong, if it caught a yoiju, which had fallen from heaven. But other sources say emojis are hornless creatures resembling dragons who have been cursed and are unable to become real dragons. Okay. Other accounts say an emoji is emoji. Okay, I'm gonna say whatever I want. Is a proto dragon which must survive 1,000 years and then it will become a fully fledged dragon. Sure, just until once it grows up. Exactly, they just have a really long adolescence. Yeah. So also like in China, in Korean myths, some kings were described as descending from dragons. The dragons were a symbol of a monarch. So for example, Lady Aryong, who was the first queen of Scylla, is said to have been born from a cockatrice, which is a Apparently another type of dragon. A cockatrice? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't... I didn't think... I didn't assume before I started this that that would be considered a dragon. Yeah, I mean, but... that seemed more bird-like to me than uh, anything else, but okay. And uh, the, the founder of the kingdom, Goryeo, was descended from the dragon king of the West Sea. So in Korea, dragon patterns were used exclusively by the royal family. So the royal robe was also referred to as the dragon robe. The king wore five talon dragons, and the crown prince would wear four talon dragons on their robe. Okay. 
that that would denote stature or yeah placement. Exactly. More okay. claws is more important. Sure. Um. All right. Moving on to Vietnam. So the Vietnam dragons, also called Long or Zong, I found several pronunciations. Zong. Okay. Yeah. It was also used as a deity symbol associated with royalty. Uh, dragons, again, represent yang. The dragon deities are associated with creation and life. Um, in Vietnamese folklore, the dragon is probably the most sacred of the creatures. They're tied very closely to begin the beginning of the country. Um, a dragon is considered one of the ancestors of ancient Vietnamese royalty and, you know, all Vietnamese people. So according to the legend, the water dragon Lac Long Quan married a fairy in bird form. Who was named sure. as yeah, as you do as and she was named Ao Ko and she laid one hundred eggs and that is where the people of Vietnam come from. So Vietnamese people say that they are the children of a dragon and grandchildren of a fairy, which doesn't really make sense. Yeah, I was gonna say that <laughs> both would be parents. When in did my we mind, expect but... mythology to make sense, though? It doesn't um, have to make sense. I don't, yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah, so Vietnamese dragons have a similar appearance to Chinese dragons. Um, the differences can be that their bodies are divided into 12 sections, which represent the 12 months of the year. Uh, they depict the dragon in a very winding form to kind of associate that with Vietnam's geography. The northern section is the tail of the dragon, and the middle is the mountains, and the head is the southern part. Okay. So like in China, the number of claws indicates the level of social hierarchy, kind of the same in, you know... Yeah. Korea. Seeing a trend um, there. A five claw dragon indicated royalty and three claws were for commoners. Oh, okay. Well, that's, there's not a lot in between there. Uh, I, four claws are for... Nobles or something? They didn't mention four claws. Okay. I don't know. Um, not much to say about Bhutan. I just wanted to mention it because as you may or may not know, they have a thunder dragon on their flag to this day. So that's pretty cool. Um, that in Bhutan, the dragon's called the Druk known as the Thunder Dragon, one of the national symbols of Bhutan. Um, in the native language of Bhutan, which is called Zongka, Bhutan is known as Druk Yul, or Land of Druk. Um, the leaders are called Druk Gyalpo, which are Thunder Dragon Kings. Cool. Yeah. So this originated in Tibet and kind of spread to Bhutan as we know it now. Um, okay, but India. India is cool, so let's talk about India. Um... There is some association between dragons and rain. It's not as strong, but not for quite example, as linked. Um, well, just like not as many, like not all okay. of them are. So Indra, the Vedic god of storms, battles Vertra, a giant serpent who represents drought. Indra kills Vertra using his Vajra, which is a thunderbolt, and then clears the path for rain. There's another Rigvedic legend um, where the hero. Thretwana slays a three-headed dragon, Azidaka, and takes his two beautiful wives in victory. And then Thretwana's name actually means third grandson of the waters, um, which kind of means that this dragon monster, Azidaka, like Vertra, is a blocker of waters and a cause of drought. Okay. Yeah. So... So did they consider those dragons, like how you'd sing in Japan, that... Uh, some of them weren't necessarily benevolent, but some exactly. of them were evil. This is another case in, of that. In India, they definitely had some not-so-nice dragons. Okay. Um, but now I want to talk about the Naga. Great. Coming from the Sanskrit word for serpent. Mm-hmm. 
in Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism, Nagas are a class of mythical semi-divine beings, mm-hmm. half human and half cobra. Right. They're strong and they're handsome, and they can uh, choose to appear either wholly human or wholly serpentine if they want. They live in an underground kingdom called Nagaloka, yeah. which is filled with ornate palaces and beautifully decorated uh, buildings with precious gems. And so the creator deity Brahma had relegated all the Nagas to this kind of nether region when they became too populous on the earth. And he commanded them to bite only the truly evil or those destined to die prematurely. So they do have kind of that, like the fates or they have rules. Hades, like like the ruler of the other world, but not necessarily like because they're evil or anything. Just right. this is your job. Okay. Yeah. Um, they're associated with water also and are guardians of treasure. This is kind of one of the first times we see that characteristic, but that obviously will come up more with dragons, as you know. Yeah, like smog. <laughs> He's not the only one. No. So three notable Nagas are Shesha, also called Ananta, uh, Vasuki, and Takshaka. So Shesha is said to hold all the planets of the universe on his hoods and constantly sings the glories of Vishnu from all his mouths. When Shesha uncoils, time moves forward and creation takes place. When he coils back, the universe ceases to exist. Uh, the Narayana form of Vishnu is often like drawn resting on Shesha, accompanied by Lakshmi, who is his, they call it consort, wife, girlfriend, okay. who knows. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Sheshna is one of the two mounts of Vishnu in mythology. Um, Vasuki was used as a rope to churn the cosmic ocean of milk. So another creation story thing. And then Takshaka was the tribal chief of the snakes. In modern Hinduism, the birth of the serpents is celebrated on Naga Panchami, and that's in the month Shravana. That's somewhere between July and August. Anyways, that's cool. Like so, another hidden month between the two. N- no. They probably uh, just use their own calendar like fine. other places do. You got me excited there for a moment. I know. Um, female... Nagas are called Nagini, which Harry Potter much. Yeah. I finally just I've made I've made this connection. Nagini was a theme giant female snake. Yeah. Okay, so Naginis um, are serpent princesses of striking beauty. Um, so the dynasties of Manipur in northeastern India, the Pallavas in southern India, and the ruling family of Funan, which is ancient Indochina, by the way. Okay. Um, all claim to originate from the union of a human and a Nagini. So a lot of dragons in mythology are based on this Indian Naga, Nagini, dragon, dragon serpent. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, tons. Thailand, Cambodia, Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines. I don't have time to talk about all these places, but I will just quickly talk about the Philippines before we move on. Okay. Um, so the Bakunawa appears as a gigantic serpent serpent that lives in the sea. Um, ancient native peoples in the Philippine islands believe that at certain types of year, the Bakunawa would arise from the ocean and swallow the moon whole. To keep the Bakunawa from completely eating the moon, the native peoples would go out of their houses with pots and pans and make lots of noise to scare the Bakunawa into spitting out the moon. And that's why we have like the cycles of the moon then? Eclipses. Oh, eclipses. Okay. Right, you did say that we were going to have... Yes, that's how they explain lunar eclipses. Yeah. But the Bakunawa wasn't always described as a serpent. Apparently, she started as a beautiful goddess 
But then with the Indianization of Southeast Asia, like increased trade contact, all of a sudden she was kind of conflated with the Naga and now she was a serpent. Okay. Yeah. Yes. I'm just thinking like, you know, eclipses were scary, incomprehensible sure. things. Like the sun and the moon were gone. Oh my God. The end of the world. So they had to write stories to... Of course. You know. Explain it. And do things to get the moon back to make themselves feel better, right? So other dragons from various peoples of the Philippine Islands are Lawu, a serpent from Kapampangan mythology, who tries to swallow the moon and causes lunar eclipses. This, all of them do that, okay? Olima, a winged phantom dragon serpent from Ilocano mythology that tries to swallow the moon. Sawa, a huge serpent monster from Tagalog and Ati mythologies that tries to swallow the moon and sun, but is blocked by the god of the sun, Apolaki, and the goddess of the moon, Mayari. Um, another one is Samal Naga, a gigantic dragon trapped in the Milky Way, which will one day be freed and devour all of those not faithful to their respective deities. Finally, there's the Canlone dragon, a mad dragon that lives in Mount, well, lived in Mount Canlone on Negros Island. Because according to Hilaganyan mythology, it was actually defeated by their epic folk heroes. Um, yeah, so in the Philippines, they really had a thing for dragons that would eat the moon. And yeah, so, sounds know. like it. So let's jump to kind of the ancient Middle East, Near East area and talk about like Mesopotamia. Um, they had lots of references to dragons, both benevolent and malevolent. Um, in Sumerian poetry, great kings are often compared to the Usumgal, which is a gigantic serpentine monster. Um, a draconic creature with the four arms of a lion and the hind legs, tail, and wings of a bird appears in some Mesopotamian artwork from the Akkadian period. So that's like 2300 BCE. Um, all the way into the Neo-Babylonian period, like 540 BCE. So for a long time, a long they drew time. this figure. Yeah. yeah. Um, it... The dragon is usually shown with its mouth open and might have been known as an umu, which means roaring weather beast. So clearly there's also some association there with with storms weather, that kind of thing. Um, A slightly different lion dragon with two horns and the tail of a scorpion appears in art from the Neo-Assyrian period, which is like 900 BCE. Um, Another draconic type creature had horns and the body and neck of a snake the forelegs of a lion and the hind legs of a bird appears in some Mesopotamian art um, kind of around 300 to about 30 BCE in that time period. And it was known in Akkadian as the Mushusu, which meant furious serpent. And they kind of symbolized a few different deities. And it was kind of also a general protective symbol. Um, So yeah, you're seeing like a lot of Okay, lions were scary here, so now all dragons had lions in them. It definitely kind of happens wherever, uh, I don't know, the people are, are fearsome of, of a certain animal. It tends to show up in their dragons. Okay. Um, Tiamat was the Babylonian goddess personifying primeval chaos in the Babylonian creation myth. And she's usually described as a giant serpent with horns, a tail, and a hide that no weapon can penetrate. Um, but sometimes she's described as having the form of a woman. Women were also scary. Uh, (laughs) Very true. (laughs) Tiamat was slain by the god Marduk and used to create the world. Her body and carcass was used to create the world. Cool. So, let's talk about the Levant region. 
Yeah. Um, so around 1370 BCE, a scribe copied part of a story called the Epic of Baal onto a clay tablet um, to put in the library of Ugarit. So it was a major port city in what's now northern Syria. Yeah. And, I mean, this story obviously had been around bef- before then, but now we're getting around to writing it down. Um, Baal, as you might have heard of, this kind of god in the Levant region. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. So Ugarit spoke a West Semitic language, and their deities came from the Canaanite pantheon of gods, which Canaanite. is where Canaanites, that's that's where Baal comes from. Okay. They were in the Old Testament of the Bible a I lot. I just don't remember that one specifically, but sure. that. Um, so on the tablet, they talk about a sea dragon, Lotanu, who is described as, quote, the twisting serpent, the powerful one with seven heads. Lotanu is slain by Baal, the storm god. But other versions say that Anat, the virgin warrior goddess, is who, who kills them. Um, now, I want you to remember that, the twisting serpent. Because now we're going to talk about the Bible. Perfect. Um, and it might surprise you or not surprise you to learn that the Bible clearly references dragons. Not really surprising, but keep going. Okay. So in the book of Psalms, the sea dragon Leviathan comes up. Exactly. That was the one I could think of. He is slain by the Lord as part of the creation of the world. In Isaiah, it says, quote, On that day, the Lord shall punish with his sharp, great, and strong sword, Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent. He will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Anyways, I guess it's no surprise because, like I said, the Canaanite people were all over the Old Testament of the Bible. This is the region and time period. But as you know, that's the exact same terminology used in the previous description in the Epic of Baal. The twisting serpent. Anyways, I thought that was cool. So then in Job, it continues kind of detailing the description of the Leviathan. He's described as being so powerful that only the Lord can overcome it. It clearly says the Leviathan exhales fire and smoke. Really? Yes. In some parts of the Old Testament, the Leviathan is used to symbolize nations that stand against the Lord. Yeah. Um, They use the word Rahab as a synonym for Leviathan. And it's in several biblical passages referencing Egypt. Yeah. um, Referencing Babylon. Yeah. In Ezekiel, the pharaoh of Egypt is twice described as a dragon. In a story from the book of Daniel, Prophet Daniel sees a dragon being worshipped by the Babylonians. And the da- oh, Daniel then makes cakes of pitch, fat, and hair, and the dragon eats those and bursts open. Oh. But lest you think it's only the Old Testament that talks about dragons. We were in danger of that. We get to hear some more very interesting references to dragons in the New Testament. Revelations. So in Revelations... They describe a vision of a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns, and a massive tail. Um, it's kind of thought to be, like, inspired by the the beast from the book of Daniel, like a sea beast, and the Leviathan we've already talked about. And this great red dragon knocks a third of the sun, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars out of the sky and pursues the woman of the apocalypse. And war, I'm going to quote here, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against dragon. Dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. 
Dragon the Great was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called Devil and Satan, the one deceiving the whole inhabited world, he was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So what I am taking from this is that Satan is a dragon. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it seems logical. Entirely. I mean, the tough part about mythology is different translations, slightly different words, different depictions, but like, Satan's a dragon. (laughs) Um, Some scholars believe the whole fire-breathing element of dragons comes from medieval painters and other artists and how and the art that they made inspired by the Bible and health, the descriptions of hell from the Bible. Yeah, okay. So, for example, Dutch painter Hieronymus Bosch, amongst others, would paint, like, the entrance to hell as the monster's literal mouth flames and smoke and brimstone, you know, yeah. all that stuff. And that... You know, they're thinking that's one of the earliest kind of sources of this uh, characteristic, which is kind of cool. So we're going to move on to Iran, Iran, Persia area. Yeah. And um, in a very similar name to someone I mentioned in the Indian folklore, we have Ozzy Dahaka, the great snake, which is a dragon or demonic figure in like Zoroastrian texts and mythology. Um, so it's the source of the Middle Persian demon of greed called Az. And the name kind of also migrated to Eastern Europe. And like Balkans, Slavic languages kind of took the name for their dragon word and dragoness or water snake words. Um, in Zoroastrian literature, Ozzy Dahaka is the most significant, long-lasting of the dragons in the Avesta, which was like the earlier religious text of Zoroastrianism. Um, he's described as monster with three mouths, six eyes, and three heads, who is cunning, strong, and demonic. So we're kind of transitioning. I mean, we just did. The Bible, all, all dragons are bad. Okay. Right. Yeah. There's a pretty stark difference. Yes. So in other respects, though, Aji Dahaka has human qualities and is never just an animal. Um, in later Zoroastrian texts, um, including one called the Dankard, He is possessed of all possible sins and all possible evil counsels, the opposite of the good king, Jamshid. So, yeah, we're we're into dragons are now evil. Terrible, evil things. Um, In some, I've never heard of this, but Sufi literature, so this is another Persian thing. um, They write that dragon symbolizes the sensual soul, greed, and lust that needs to be, quote, mortified in a spiritual battle. So, again, we're kind of getting more into the treasure, other sins. Right. Um, In another tale, we have the Iranian hero Rostam, who must slay an 80-meter-long dragon. But the issue is that it's invisible to human sight. That does make it tough. Yeah. So, he's sleeping, and the dragon's approaching, and his legendary horse, Raksh, attempts to wake him. But it's too late. So, instead, Raksh bites the dragon, and then Rostam decapitates it. That's pretty much all I got. It doesn't really say how. Just hmm. maybe because his horse was biting onto it. So he, he knew where to swing. I don't know. Yeah. To where it was. This okay. was the third trial of Rostam's seven labors to slay this dragon. Oh. Right. Yes. Rostam is also credited with slaying other dragons, notably in the myth of the Babari Bayan. So in this tale, he is still an adolescent and he kills a dragon, quote, in the Orient. We don't know. China, India, somewhere like that. Um, he forces it to swallow either ox hides filled with quicklime and stones or poison blades. 
Um, then mm. the dragon's stomach bursts, and Rostam makes a coat from its hide called the Babar e Bayan. Um, I thought maybe he was going to make poison arrows or something. <laughs> well, in some in some variants of the story, Rostam then remains unconscious for two days and nights, but he's guarded by his loyal horse. Um, in the Mandaean tradition of the story, Rostam hides in a box, is swallowed by the dragon, and kills it from inside its belly. And then the king of China gives Rostam his daughter in marriage. Mm-hmm. So. Sure. I mean, but despite all these negative aspects of these dragons in Iranian mythology, they did, Iranian people in real life did use dragon symbology on some of their like war banners and war parties, I guess, okay. you know, to be terrifying. Yeah. Um, okay. Moving on to Europe now. Older Europe. Greek. Let's do the Greco-Roman together because you cannot yeah. really separate them. I know. And they're also fairly close Europe geographically from where we've just been talking they sure are so it's hard to be like now we're in europe yeah i mean middle east we're, cro- <laughs> we're across a little bit of a, the I mediterranean just, a i just wanted to organize my podcast but it's very tough to tell yeah. like or separate these places but um like we said before the greek word i mean it's just serpent but so giant serpents are dragons um greek and romans pretty much had evil dragons i mean they were always m- monsters. Yeah. So the first mention of a dragon in ancient Greek literature occurs in the Iliad. Um, Agamemnon is described as having a blue dragon motif on his sword belt and an emblem of a three-headed dragon on his breastplate. Oh. Yeah. That's that, the that's earliest the first, mention. Okay. Yeah. Um, Hesiod's Theogony, which is like a very important foundational Greek poem from the 7th century BCE, which like... It establishes the origins of most of their pantheon of gods. Like, it's a right. really important um, poem. Um, Zeus battles the monster Typhon, who has 100 serpent heads that breathe fire and make many frightening animal noises. So Zeus scorches all of Typhon's heads with his lightning bolts, and then he hurls Typhon into Tartarus. Yeah. The kind of bad underworld part of the underworld. <laughs> well, yeah, they had different areas, yes. Yes, sure. that's what I'm saying. This is like the bad one. Yeah. Correct. So, um, in you may or not remember this, but in our Garden Myths episode, we talked about how the god Apollo slayed Python, a kind of serpent monster, yeah. who was said to be the son of Gaia herself. He slayed him at Delphi and then took over the oracle there. I was going to say it had to do with giving... That gave... Well, I was going to say it had to do with the oracles, but you made that connection. Um, I was going to say that that was also part of the source of the oracle's power, right? That story has a very many, very many origins. Okay. I think we, we did touch on some of those things in the Garden Myths episode, if you are curious. Yeah. Um, another famous dragon was the Hydra. You must have heard of that one. Yeah. A water snake monster with about nine heads. So the Hydra's most famous characteristic was that each time a head was cut off, two more would grow from the stump. Um, so the Hydra was terrorizing the swamps in a region called Lerna until Heracles, or of course in the Roman Hercules, has to kill it as part of his famous 12 labors. Yep. Do you remember which labor it was? Mm, that was no, relatively early. Four? Two. Number two. Because he uses the arrows to shortcut many of the labors later on. So, yes. So to slay it. First, Heracles lures it out of its den by shooting flaming arrows at it. Yeah. That, I mean, again, there's different yeah. sources. But in this source, 
Hercules then grapples with it, which, by the way, just means wrestles. And he's holding his breath the whole time. So he doesn't breathe the poison air that the Hydra... I did ex- not read that. Extrudes. When, oh, was, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. So every time Hercules destroys one of its heads, he had his companion or nephew, or they refer to him as different ways, his Iolaus, cauterize the neck so new heads didn't grow. Um, and then after Her- Heracles cuts off the final head, which, by the way, was immortal, he had to bury it under a really big rock. And then some versions also say that during this battle, a giant crab crawls out of the marsh and pinches Heracles' foot. But he huh. crushes it under his heel, and then Hera places this crab in the sky as the constellation Cancer. Oh. By the way. Okay. <laughs> so then, for his 11th labor... Heracles has to get a golden apple from the tree in the Garden of the Hesperides. Yep. Which is guarded by an enormous serpent that never sleeps called Ladon. Um, I also think we talked about this in Garden Myths, but it's cool, yep. so I'm going to say it again. Of course, accounts differ. In Pseudo-Apollodorus' telling, Ladon's immortal, but Sophocles and Euripides both describe Heracles as killing him, but they don't say how. Herodorus is the first to say Heracles slew him using his famous club. Apollonius of Rhodes, in the Argonautica, describes Ladon as having been shot full of poisoned arrows dipped in the blood of the Hydra, which is what you were talking about. But see, not many or all people say that. This is just, people can make up whatever they want. Yeah. Right. So the last kind of famous Greco-Roman dragon story I will tell you about, even though of course there's many more, is the foundational myth of Thebes. So Cadmus, who is a Phoenician prince, was instructed by Apollo to follow this heifer. And he was to found his city wherever it lays down. Correct. So Cadmus and his men follow the heifer. And when it lays down, Cadmus tells his men to go find a spring so he can sacrifice the heifer to Athena. Which I don't really get because Apollo told him to do this. So why isn't he sacrificing it to Apollo? But oh well. So his men find a spring, but the spring is guarded by a dragon, which had been placed there by Ares. And the dragon kills all the men. Cadmus then comes and kills the dragon in revenge, either by smashing its head with a rock or using his sword. Different sources. I do find it interesting that all his men were killed by this dragon and Cadmus comes along by himself and is like, I'm going to throw a rock at you. Now you're dead. I know. (laughs) So then following the advice of Athena, Cadmus tears out all the dragon's teeth, plants them in the air, and then an army of giant warriors called the Spartoi which means sown men, grow from the teeth like plants. And then Cadmus just throws stones at them. Not to kill them, just to make them angry and start fighting each other. Correct. And then they start killing each other, and then only five were left. And those are... Yep, basically discarded. But they just don't really talk about them anymore. They're like, the end. Those five were left. The end. Yeah. They don't say why they stopped killing each other, why they won't just kill Cadmus, why they're loyal to him at all. Like, they don't say anything. They're just like, oh, by the way. Anyways, then Cadmus has to make restitution for killing Ares' dragon for some reason. So then Cadmus has to serve Ares as a slave for eight years. At the end of these eight years, then they let Cadmus marry Harmonia, the daughter of Ares and Aphrodite. Aphrodite was not married to Ares, by the way. She was married to Hephaestus, but okay. She likes to cheat on him a lot as the goddess of love and such. Um, Cadmus and Harmonia moved to Illyria. They ruled as king and queen. And then eventually they were transformed into snakes. I was going to say snakes, yeah. But what do we know about snakes? 
They're dragons. Exactly. The end. <laughs> so, moving away from all this mythology into some written history, um, in the 5th century BCE, the Greek historian Herodotus reports that Western Libya was inhabited by monstrous serpents. And Arabia was home to many small winged serpents, which came in a variety of colors, and they really enjoyed the trees that produced frankincense. Herodotus writes that the serpent's wings were bat-like, and that unlike vipers, which are found in every land, winged serpents are only found in Arabia. Sure. And then, according to the Roman Clodius Aelianus, Ethiopia was inhabited by a species of dragon that hunted elephants and could grow to a length of 55 meters. It's pretty big. 180 feet. Um, and the lifespan rivaled that of the most enduring of animals. So there you go. The Greeks really, and Romans, really did think dragons were real. And lived a long time. Very, very long. All right. So now moving on to the section I've called Europe, colon, other. You know, yes. other places in Europe. Had a hard time defining them. Just everywhere else now. Um, There's only a couple other places in Europe, so that makes sense. <laughs> so, uh, the broad category, Proto-Indo-European, um, since there's just kind of uh, many, many small tribes and they had similar mythologies, albeit, you know, with, with variants. Okay. Um, and it's hard to piece together what exactly their myths were. They weren't necessarily written down or written down well or anything. Okay. Um, so what we know is that the story of a hero slaying a giant serpent does occur in nearly every um, Indo-European mythology. Um, in most of the stories, the hero is some kind of thunder god or even, you know, just a man that becomes a thunder god, something kind of okay. like that. Or in nearly every iteration of this story, this serpent is multi-headed or multiple in some other way. And again, in nearly every story, this serpent is somehow associated with water. Especially, I mean, if they're a thunder god, then, I mean, related to rain. Uh, it seems to make sense. Oh, the hero is the thunder god. The thing that Got kills it. the serpent. Oh, okay. Yes. Got it. Um, so, if there was some general um, Proto-Indo-European dragon-slaying myth, though, that's more specifically about a dragon... It can be summed up um, by the following. So first, the sky gods give cattle to a man named... I notice this is a man this time, not a god, but a sure. man named Tritos, um, who just... That just means the third, because he is the third man on Earth. Oh, pretty um, early on. Yes. And, but, you know, a three-headed serpent named something that starts with four consonants, Nigui steals them then tritos pursues the serpent and kills them and rescues the cattle and tritos becomes the first warrior and this is kind of their general pattern of story okay um let's jump to norse mythology because that's cool norse okay yes way up, way up north to the norse <laughs> exactly totally um totally why they're called that yeah yeah so by far the most well-known norse dragons are Things I'm going to say terribly, because Icelandic, I think, is one of the hardest languages to sure. pronounce, and and I'm not even going to try. Okay. We've got Nidog, the Malice Striker, Jormungandr, the mm -hmm. Midgard Serpent, yeah. and Fafnir, yeah. who is a Cursed Dragon. And then there is some kind of 
important but unnamed dragon who was killed by Frotho the First, a legendary king of the Danes. Mm, he was a hobbit, so, though. So <laughs> we will get to that. You're getting ahead oh, of sorry. me. Sorry, sorry, Frotho. <laughs> Um, Nidog appears in the Old Norse text as an atrocious creature, he's described, which gnaws the roots of the world tree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it displays terrifying behavior towards the dishonored, uh, dishonest dwellers of hell. H-E-L. Yes. Not only one L. That's right. But it is the realm of the dishonorable dead in mm-hmm. Norse cosmology. So sim- similar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jormungandr literally means the great beast. Is one of the offspring of the giantist Angerbroda and the trickster god Loki. That's correct. Thank you. I'm glad you approve. I do approve. This and is this is some of the mythology that I actually have heard of a little it's bit. So, so very interesting. I'm not surprised. Yeah. So is the humongous sea serpent which dwells in the ocean that encircles Midgard. Um, if you don't know, that's where the humans live in yeah. Norse cosmology. It is in basically Midgard. think of it as our Earth scape. Right. So the, well, you, you can probably tell us this, the arch nemesis of Jormungandr is... No, I don't recall. Thor. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah. You know, Thor. God of lightning, god of thunder, protector of mankind, that one. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. So then we have Fafnir, who was initially a dwarf. The son of King Hraidmar of the dwarves. He was cursed by a magical ring. That's never happened in any other mythology <laughs> um, in more current times. So this magical ring was crafted by a magician dwarf named Andvari. And the, you know, cursed ring turns him into a dragon. Which, as someone pointed out to me, does sound kind of better than being a dwarf. Except yeah. for the fact that someone's trying to slay you. So he was slain by Sigurd, a legendary Norse hero. Yeah. Not a god of hero, but you know. Yeah. Now, would you say that a cursed dwarf is akin to maybe like an elf? Not a cursed uh, dwarf, sorry, no. a magic dwarf. Oh, I was like, no, like elves are demonstrably cooler well, no. than dwarves, are I they not? It. Well, but maybe a magic so a dwarf would dwarf be like an elf. elf, and then it was an elf who forged the ring. Oh, yeah. Which would be more magic. in line with the mythology I'm aware of. <laughs> so, interestingly, Fafnir might have been the basis for the dragon Smaug. From, you know, Tolkien's The Hobbit, which further explains this kind of dragon sickness for treasure that Tolkien writes about. If you don't know this fact, uh, Norse dwarves are very famously obsessed with gold and treasure um, in every story about them. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in fact, I know this is super off topic, but apparently most of the dwarves characteristics that Tolkien used are from Norse dwarf mythology. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. Um, so for this last unnamed dragon, the story says King Frotho I travels to an island where a dragon lives in a cave in a mountain, guarding an immense hoard of treasure. Hmm. Uh, to defend against its poison, Frotho needs, you know, this special cowhide shield, and he kills the dragon and takes his treasure. Then he uses the money to finance expeditions into the Baltic, where he wins victories with very clever strategies, like the time he cross-dressed as one of his own shield maidens, which has just reminded me of the story where Thor, Thor yeah. cross-dresses. Mm-hmm. So, as for real life goes, um, the wealthiest of the Norse longships were decorated with dragon heads on their bow and stern. Um, that was a sign of strength and power and bravery. 
Uh, dragon flags were sometimes used on the battlefield by the Norse men and also by the Anglo-Saxons in order to imita- intimidate their foes. So the dragon was a major symbol that defined the Viking Age, basically. Right. And speaking of the Anglo-Saxons, let's talk about them next. So you can't really separate the Anglo-Saxon people from like the Germanic, Norman, you know, that yeah, kind of area. So this is the general area the wyvern comes from. You might have heard of a wyvern. Yes. It is a variation of the Western dragon. um, And it makes one of its earliest ever appearances on the Bayou Tapestry, which um, is basically a whole bunch of depictions of the Anglo-Saxons during William the Conqueror's conquest of England. The Conqueror's Conquest. That was not the best way to word that. But well, but it was his conquest, and yes. he was known for conquest, so he using was, the word conquest many times makes sense. Yes, that Conqueror was good at conquesting. So this early appearance of the Wyvern might have inspired the famous Red Dragon of the Welsh flag. Okay. Possibly. Um, one William Sayers has shown through his research that the wyvern has a mixed origin among the Saxon, Germanic, and Norman peoples. Um, But it did start out as kind of like an ordinary evil poisonous snake and then turned into this kind of hybrid fantastic beast that it is. Um, The wyvern is more like a flying serpent in in picture um, with the body and head of a traditional dragon, but the legs of a raptor, like an eagle, Mm -hmm. Um, its tail is barbed, and wyverns are common symbols in, in heraldry, and they supposedly represent tyranny and pestilence and conquest of a vicious enemy. Uh, sometimes wyverns are depicted without their wings, which are usually described as bat-like wings, which again would yeah. go back to that more evil snake thing. Um, by the way, there is literal classifications of dragons that people have made like species and subspecies and so when when wyverns are depicted without their wings they are reclassified into the subspecies lindworms i've heard that term before oh i haven't yeah but you know just in case you ever needed to know that at bar trivia (laughs) well i've seen a number of the classification of dragons in the harry potter book that our son reads occasionally right norwegian ridgeback right um, yeah, and she says there's only one type of Asian dragon. Yeah, the Chinese fireball. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's the only type. Yeah. Good one. Mm. Okay, so let's move on to um, the most, probably most well-known depiction of the Western or Occidental dragon. Okay. As the Western dragon is known. Um, which is probably the story of St. George the Dragon Slayer. Yeah. I'm, I don't know if you've heard it. You sound like you may have. Heard it? Yes. Well, I'll tell you something is that it it kind of confuses me, but we'll get to that part. Hmm. So, uh, here, obviously the most well-known dragons are that Western Occidental dragon. That's what you picture when someone says the word dragon to you, probably. Um, And that kind of developed out of the ancient folklore of the Middle East and Europe. So, it's not very connected to the Asian dragon traditions. Right. Um, so there's lots of types of Western dragons. Uh, the garden variety Western dragon is going to be big. It's going to have scales. It's going to be kind of crocodilian and lizard-like feet, clawed feet. They usually have a dorsal ridge that, a long tail, 
um, which might be barbed. They will often or always breathe fire or other deadly fumes, you know, like poisonous gases or something. Right. Um, so Occidental dragons are usually green, red, or black. Rarely they can be blue, yellow, or white. Apparently no other colors, but really? just traditionally. <laughs> well, there aren't that many other colors. No purple dragons, traditionally. Purple. Okay. <laughs> Sure. Right. Brown. I don't know. I'm just. I'm just thinking. Yeah. Um, some don't have wings, but often the Western dragons definitely don't have wings. Um, so by the time of the Middle Ages, Occidental dragons were invariably evil. Um, they were greedy, guarding their treasure hordes, uh, which is I don't want to say the fault of. Yeah, it's Christianity's doing that right. dragons became invariably evil. Um, so they kind of demonized any positive traits that used to be associated with dragons as they kind of saw them as a symbol of pagan polytheism and they wanted to stamp that out. Yeah. You can't have any of that going on. Right. So on to St. George, the dragon slayer. So in that story, the dragon, there's a dragon. He's repeatedly pillaging this town of Silene in Libya. Um, where it's eating all their sheep. So finally, after it eats a shepherd, the people of the town decide to provide two sacrificial sheep to it every morning by the lake where it lived. Um, notice it still lives by a lake. Yeah. Uh-huh. So when they run out of sheep, then they're forced to begin offering their children to be eaten. Yeah. And like almost every other old European legend, it's only once the princess had to be offered up that, you yeah. know... Someone's going to do something, something about, about it. it. Yeah. yeah. So uh, here comes St. George and he s- stabs it with his lance and makes the sign of the cross. And then it says he leads the rescued princess to Selene with the beaten dragon in tow. And he promises the people he will slay the beast if they convert to Christianity. The only thing that confuses me is it just seemed like it was already dead, but I guess they just he just stabbed it enough to make it not quite dead and then dragged it into town and yeah. said he'll finish killing it. At this point, why did they need him to finish killing it? To convert their... Like, that seems like a pain in the butt. To, I'm sure they were not Christian. They were probably um, Muslim. Yeah, probably. And then they all had to convert, but it was already beaten. Anyways, that's the, that's the part that kind of confused me. It's yeah. like he, he beat it first and then said, but I'll beat it if you convert to Christianity. Oh, I might have already done that part, but... Maybe he was willing to nurse it back to health. <laughs> if they didn't convert, yeah. he would rescue the dragon yeah. and throw the princess back. Okay, fair enough. So this narrative kind of was assembled over time from various sources. St. George was born in Cappadocia, which is in modern day Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, in the third century CE. And traditionally, he was a soldier. He refused to practice the pagan worship of the area, and maybe he burnt down a Roman temple. Oh, good. For which he was then martyred. That's kind of the um, backstory of St. George. Um, so, but then for centuries, there was no connection between him and a dragon. And then it popped up in the West. So it's like they just, Christianity kind of co-opted a Balkan hero. Yeah, that's not surprising. No, but also a slight bit confusing. Like they couldn't have found anyone that wasn't from Turkey. And okay, whatever. Doesn't matter. Let's move on to kind of the Slavic Eastern European lore. 
Um, so the Eastern European dragon was very similar to the Western one. Um, like the wyvern, Slavic dragons kind of are just like a variation of the Occidental dragon. I like saying that word because it sounds like you're saying it's an accidental dragon. <laughs> Almost. But with an O in front of it instead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anyways, less, our Eastern dragons are, are serpentine. Um, but unlike the Western ones, they may have multiple heads from three up to 12 heads. Uh, other variations show them having the head of a serpent and the body of a man, which flew on a winged really? horse. Interesting. Okay. Some sources say there were dragons with the head of a man and the body of a serpent. I can't decide which would be more creepy. Yeah, that's a tough Both one. Both of them sound very creepy. Yeah. Right. Um, Slavic dragons also had kind of like even greater powers, like really crazy powers compared to even Western dragons. Um, like, as we've kind of seen in other areas, being the cause of solar and lunar eclipses. Cool. That's kind of come back around. Um, but like the Western dragons, Slavic dragons were seen as the embodiment of evil. So Eastern dragons, Slavic Eastern dragons, were generally known as Zmai, and they're often the antagonists in any Russian folklore stories. Um, the most famous tale, according to the internet, I, I don't really know, <laughs> didn't spend too much time on this, is a story of Dobrynia Nikitich. I, that's terrible. I can't pronounce that. That's my closest guess. Uh, who slew a three-headed dragon, Zmi Gorishish. Yep, that's all I got. Let's move but to he the... Did it. <laughs> or she. Oh, okay. I don't know. Dobrynia? I don't know. I don't know these names. Not sure. They did it. Well done. The Americas has dragon folklore as well. Cool. Um, I didn't even touch on any of the North American indigenous people stories because they're not quite as clearly dragon-like as other places, and I ran out of time. Okay. Yeah. Good reason. <laughs> so let's start with Central America. Well, that's not true. Mexico is in North America. Uh, I don't yeah, want to okay. say I didn't touch on North Central America. Central America yeah. area. I yeah. get it. Yep. Dragon folklore... Um, it was a little different, but it's still present. So the probably most famous is the Quetzalcoatl, which apparently is how you say the word I thought was Quetzalcoatl. Yeah. No, you just say Quetzalcoatl. Okay. And you have to say the T like you're like putting your tongue in the roof of your mouth and blowing air in your mouth. Quetzalcoatl. Cool. Anyways, um, that's what YouTube says. Perfect. So he, it, he was one of the chief gods of the ancient kind of Mesoamerican area. It means plumed serpent or precious serpent. I was going to say, I thought that one had feathers. It does. Yeah. It sure does. Uh, Quetzalcoatl was a wind and rain god. There you go. Storms again. Responsible for the creation of earth and humans. To the Aztecs, because it wasn't just the Aztec people, right? But to the Aztecs. Uh, Quetzalcoatl was the god of wind, air, and learning. He was a giver of technology and agriculture to humanity as well. Um, so because of this, he was much more comparable to Eastern dragons than those of the Western tradition because he sense. was not evil. Right. Right. He was depicted in art as having a rattlesnake's body, but the beak 
and kind of a feathered crest. Yeah. Um, some of the HR representations show black and yellow feathers. Uh, some show jewelry, like jade earrings. Uh, Quetzalcoatl today is still seen as a totem of indigenous pride in Mexico and Central America. Cool. So still an important figure. Um, in South America, they had the Amaru in the Incan culture. The Amaru, or also called the Qatari, was a massive mythical serpent that lived underground, often under lakes or rivers. It was often presented as having the heads of a bird and a puma, and said to be capable of traveling between the spiritual afterlife and the subterranean world where it lived. Um, then in southern Chile, they had a beast called a Puechen, and it was evil. <laughs> it was an evil creature uh, that was a strong figure in the mythology of the Mapuche and Chilote peoples. So it sucked blood oh. of animals and humans. And to gain their sustenance, they had a shape-shifting ability. They could assume any shape, but they most commonly were the shape of a giant snake with enormous wings. And it also had a hypnotic stare, which immobilized its victims. Kind of like basilisk. A little bit. Except for it didn't insta-kill with its stare, but just okay. immobilize them for their blood to be sucked. And the peculiar hissing sound it made was uh, an omen of death. Synonymous with death. If you heard the sound, you were dead, basically. So how did anybody know what it was like? How did they know that? Uh, you should ask them. It's kind of one of those stories where it's like, if everybody who this has happened to has died, how do we know? I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So, according to the folklore, I think this might be the answer. Oh, okay. Only medicine women have the power to destroy these monsters. Mm, So maybe a medicine woman, you know, heard some things and survived and lived to tell the tale. Right. Um, It's believed that this is what eventually morphed into the chupacabra. I was going to... Okay. Was, you were going to ask that, huh? I was, well, not that specifically, I was gonna, but I was going to denote some of the similarities to Chupacabra. Uh, but Only so faster. many blood-sucking monsters in history, or yeah. mythology, and I, I should well, say. And not history. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought for some, and this might, I may be wrong on this one, but for some reason I thought the Chupacabra had shape-shifting capabilities as well. I just know all the different random animal parts that go into Chupacabra. I mean, yeah. Which is kind of like all these dragon stories. Very true. Yeah. Um, so, lastly, we are going to jump on over to Australia. Oh, down under. Yeah, except for we're just talking about indigenous people, and I don't think mm. that they say that. But They don't. Interesting. <laughs> I doubt fine. they strongly associate with the thing the colonizers say, but... Oh, fair enough. Yeah. So, the most dragon-like mytholo- like mythological creatures found in Australian Aboriginal mythology are the rainbow serpents. They are associated with deep water holes, rain and rivers, and, yeah, rainbows. Perfect. Um, so, the name rainbow serpent stems from the belief that rainbows appear when they move from, from one river or water hole to another one. Like what moves? Like the serpent the, itself? The serpent. Okay. Yeah. When it jumps, because it's a serpent, so it makes that bow oh, shape okay. when it like sure. would jump from one water source to another. Yeah. Yeah. So, Dakon is one of the variations of the rainbow serpent, and it looks like a hybrid between a fish and a snake. And that creature appears in the beliefs of the Kabi tribe. And he holds such great power that he could shatter mountains. Ooh, that's pretty good. Pretty powerful, yeah. Aingana is another rainbow serpent. 
known not only for creating the world, but for holding all its life in her hands. She keeps the umbilical cord of every living being she releases. When she cuts it, that being dies. And it's thought that if she dies, the entire world would cease to exist. Well, if no one would... Just a little yeah, powerful there. That's, that'd be a rough time. <laughs> so another dragon that appears in Australian Aboriginal mythology is the Canmare. Canmari? Something like that. A large snake with a mane around its head. This creature comes from myths in the northeastern region of Australia, also known as the Toloon by the Mitakudi people. He not only drowns fishermen who dare to fish alone, but he's also responsible for choosing doctors. Same thing, right? So, while the man is fishing, Kenmari will point a death bone at him. The man won't see this, but before he goes home, he will see the body of Kenmari undulating beneath the surface of the water. Okay. He will then fall sick for several days. Ooh. Eventually, a doctor will be called to cut a stone out of the man. This stone is the same bone Kenmari cast at the man. When the man recovers, he will become a doctor. The end. Huh. Yeah, that's a different story. It's an story. interesting medical system. <laughs> or like, you know, medical doctoring. Yeah, I don't really know what to say about that. system. I, yeah. I don't know how they know about the pointing bone thing if no one ever sees it. It's another one of those... Another one of those thinkers, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I've definitely kept you captive long enough, but dragons are cool, so I don't, uh, you know, hope you don't mind. No regrets. Um, I, again, never really know what my next podcast will be about, but I do kind of want to talk about just some persistent animal myths that should be busted, because hmm. I like animals and... Very cool. And busting. Busting myths. Yeah. Like myth busters. Whoa, whoa. That was such a good show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so thank you very much for listening to this super long episode of Teach Me Something. Once again, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. Mm-hmm.